1: in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 49 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, it was my great honor and privilege to be joined by bona fide Hollywood royalty, the great Jane Fonda. She's, of course, the daughter of the actor Henry Fonda, the sister of the actor Peter Fonda, the aunt of the actress Bridget Fonda, the mother of the actor Troy Garrity, and one of the greatest actresses of all time. Perhaps, with the possible exception of Meryl Streep, the greatest alive today. I sat down with the 78-year-old on the Paramount Pictures lot, where she had just participated in the first read-through for Netflix's third season of Grace and Frankie, a very funny show in which she and Lily Tomlin play unlikely best friends, and for which she could land a Best Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy nomination this July. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how she overcame a tremendous lack of confidence as a child to get into acting in the first place how she wound up making her film debut in 1960 and breaking out of romantic comedy parts and into social issue movies like Clute and Coming Home. She won Best Actress Oscars for both, as well as They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Fun with Dick and Jane, The China Syndrome, and 9 to 5, among many others. We also delve into the personal healing that she and her father found through the film On Golden Pond, which she personally produced and which brought him his first and only Oscar shortly before his death. She also candidly addresses a wide variety of other topics, including the impact that the suicide of her mother and the emotional distance of her father has had on her throughout her life, what really happened when she visited Vietnam, and specifically Hanoi, in the summer of 1972, why, in 1984, she became one of the first major movie stars to work in television with The Dollmaker, how perimenopause caused her to walk away from acting after 1990's Stanley and Iris, why she strategically decided to come back to the big screen 15 years later in Monster In-Law, why some celebrities are more equipped than others to make political comments, her plans to reunite next fall with Robert Redford for a fourth collaboration 50 years after their first, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you very much for doing this, appreciate it, and on each of these episodes we sort of go back and work up to the present, so I wonder if you'll humor me if we talk about some of the past first. So first of all, people might wonder, not too many houses produce two movie stars. What was it like growing up in the Fonda household?
0: When I think of my early, my first decade out here in Hollywood, it's not at all what one would think a childhood of a Hollywood star would be. We lived at the top of one of the Santa Monica Mountains at the end of a dirt road with bobcats and mountain lions and coyotes and such and I was a cowboy and I would explore. I was a a real tomboy and uh, my dad, I think he gave one party the whole time. I don't remember ever having you know anything kind of lavish or Hollywoodish mm-hmm. going on at our house? It was a memorable party, though Nat King Cole played the piano. <laughs> but we never kind of spent a lot of time in the Hollywood scene. Mm-hmm. My dad was frequently away on on location, or he went away to the Pacific Theater during the Second World War. He was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally we would visit him on the set of a movie, like. Um, Fort Apache up near Ojai where they filmed and met Shirley Temple and John Wayne and John Ford and everything. But it was not your typical Hollywood childhood.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It seems like there may be a before and after moment, just reading your autobiography and your various interviews over the years, that when tragedy happened at the age of 12, for you, do you think that really shaped the rest of your life in a major way? I can't imagine that it wouldn't have.
0: Well, our childhood, shapes our life. And the duty for all of us as individuals is to try to heal whatever wounds they are and build on our strengths and move forward in our lives in spite of what happened. My mother died when I was 12, but equally important is the fact that she suffered from mental illness and was not very present before then. So if you have a parent that's addicted or depressed or something else, it's going to affect you, of course. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, the important thing is to understand why these things happened and to forgive. Mm
1: -hmm. And with your father, it seems like there was a lot of forgiveness required as well.
0: Well, he was a a Midwestern guy of a certain generation who didn't know how to express his emotions. It's strange for an actor to say (laughs) he didn't know how to express his emotions, but he always said that acting provided him a mask where he could express things and do things that he couldn't do as himself mm-hmm. so he was pretty repressed <laughs> distant but that's true of a lot of men of his generation I think it was quite well demonstrated in the movie on Golden Pond that was kind of the way he was actually <laughs> Norman Thayer and we learned to forgive yeah you know
1: now when did you first try acting even just as a you know horsing around thing and then when did you know this was what you were made to do
0: It was the summer when my father was making 12 Angry Men and we rented a house in Hyannisport because he had finished shooting and he was going to do some summer stock and there was a summer theater there and so I worked in the summer theater, fell in love with an actor who was a stage manager (laughs) named James Franciscus and played the ingenue a small part in a play that my father did and um, I didn't enjoy it much my father said I was a natural, but, you know, he was my father, so that didn't count. Then later, I performed the ingenue role in a play that he did in Omaha with Dorothy McGuire to raise money for the Omaha Playhouse. That was the country girl. And again, it, I did not feel it came naturally to me, and it never occurred to me that that's what I was going to do. I'm one of those kids who went through my early life without knowing what I was supposed to be. It's not a good feeling at all. I certainly didn't think I wanted to be an actor. I didn't think I was interesting enough or pretty enough or and, you know, any of those things. And besides, my father would come home from work and he never brought joy with him. It was always the problems, there were always problems. So I never thought of acting as something that would be fun. I never got the bug early. But at some point, I think I was 18, I had to get a job. I got a job as a secretary, and I was fired because I wouldn't sleep with the boss. And I was really at loose ends. I didn't know what to do. And Susan Strasberg, the daughter of the famed Lee Strasberg, who ran the Actors Studio, Susan suggested I take classes with her father. And because I didn't know what else to do, I signed up and he accepted me. And eventually I did a scene for him, and he told me that I was very talented. And so that was when I suddenly allowed myself to feel like i could do what i had never thought i could
1: because really prior to that even in his class you like your classmate marilyn monroe were pretty timid about it.
0: marilyn was so frightened (laughs) of getting on the stage and performing that she'd get ill literally (sighs) sick to her stomach and she never did do a scene and it took me a month or more before lee finally said okay you've got to come up and do this what do you think you'd have done with your life if he hadn't said that to you I probably would've become an alcoholic. I don't, I mean there's, now I realize there's many things I could've done. I could've been an archeologist, a landscape gardener. I could've been a a makeup artist. I could've been a writer. I could've been a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize at the time, I was pretty screwed up when, <laughs> <laughs> when I was, those were not the good old days, trust me. So when were you with Strasburg in New York? In New York, yes.
1: Okay, so now you're 21, you come to LA. Did you come with this deal at Warner Brothers or did that come No,
0: out? I came here, uh, Josh Logan, who I knew all my life. He'd been with my father when my father did Summer Stock and he directed Mr. Roberts and I knew him and he signed me to a contract. And the first movie was with him. It was called uh, Tall Story. Sure. About basketball with Tony Curtis. Yeah. And we shot it at Warner Brothers.
1: And I have read you describe that time as not wonderful because people were trying to mold you into somebody else, right? Physically, even.
0: I didn't know who I was, so I couldn't stand up for myself because I didn't know who myself was. But in the vacuum that was me, there was everybody from the head of Warner Brothers who wanted me to wear certain kinds of clothes and falsies and this and that to Josh Logan who said I should have my jaw broken and my back teeth removed so my face would you know m- not be so round to the makeup people there at Warner Brothers who made me up so I didn't even recognize myself it was a- an extremely alienating experience mm-hmm. I hated every minute of it and when I was through I said I would never want to do this again. Wow,
1: and- yeah, you did, obviously, fairly soon after, do a variety of roles, but it seems like the ones that clicked early on were comedies, whether it was Capaloo or Barefoot in the Park or, or at least dramedies. Did that surprise you that that's what you were ending up doing
0: more of? I think it's the way I looked. If they were going to put me in anything, it was probably going to be a light comedy where I would play the girl-next-door kind of character. It's not like I had a lot of control of it. You know, I came up at the same time as Warren Beatty. We did our first screen test together for Josh Logan, by the way. And so here I am out here kind of trying to figure out my place in the scheme of things. And whereas Warren Beatty, he entered the business with a list. These are the only directors I will work with. These, I mean, he knew what he wanted and he went and asked for it and he got it. And I just was grateful if someone asked me to do something. I didn't know that no was a complete sentence. <laughs> it never occurred to me.
1: So how much did meeting your first husband impact the direction of your career with Barbarella and with everything that, that seemed like it was a very different direction suddenly or a different type of persona?
0: Well, he took me from being a light comedian to being a kind of sexy person. So from a career point of view, yes, that's kind of the direction that, that I I went in. It was a good growth experience, Living in a different country is always very interesting. You get to understand your own country better Mm -hmm. when you can look at it from outside it and understand what's good about it and what's not so good necessarily.
1: And in fact, isn't that part of what led to They Shoot Horses, don't they? You were reading this in Paris and people...
0: My husband, Roger Vadim, the director who I I worked in a number of movies with him and he directed Barbarella Mm -hmm. and Erwin Winkler offered me They Shoot Horses, Don't They? It was not a very good script and I was going to turn it down but Vadim insisted that I take it because the book it was based on was a classic in France, a classic existential novel and he said you have to do this and I'm glad he did because eventually the script was rewritten and Sidney Pollack ended up directing it.
1: and It was obviously fantastic and you mentioned And again, just going back, preparing for this, I was very struck that you said that was the first time working with Pollock that a director had actually sought your input.
0: That I felt that somebody cared what I had to say about the content of a movie. I mean, that sounds weird, because here I was married to a director, but it wasn't the same somehow.
1: And maybe is it in return for that sense of commitment from him that you really poured yourself into that part? I mean, the types of things you did to prepare were pretty Well, it was amazing.
0: partly that, but it was also... I. It was the first movie that I ever was in that that had something to say about the times we were living in. It was about people on the bottom. In this case, they were white. White, working, poor people who were trying to grasp the rainbow, desperate, took place during the depression. But we filmed it at a time when there were riots in Watts, and cities in America were burning because of race issues, and the Vietnam War was going on. So there was a lot of tumult Mm -hmm. in the United States at the time and social inequity was beginning to be talked about. And so I felt for the first time that I was making a movie that related to life and that was important. And, and so yes, I, I worked on it differently and more thoroughly than I had before. And
1: just for people's reference, sleeping in your dressing room, doing the actual hours and hours and hours of dancing? Red Buttons and I,
0: (laughs) yes, we we got permission to spend three days and three nights on the set dancing together like we would in the marathon. It was really interesting.
1: So do you feel like that's the first project that really changed your status in the minds of your colleagues from being Henry Fonda's daughter to being Jane Fonda, the very talented actress in her own right? Or had that... You know, it seems like Oscar nomination might help to do that.
0: Well, I think it was the first time that people saw that I could play drama. Barefoot in the Park kind of put me in my own category. So did um, Cat Ballou and so did Barbarella. Mm -hmm. Those three movies were important to my career. But this was the first kind of successful dramatic role that I proved I could do.
1: The one that I've heard you describe as your favorite film role, I know there's a caveat because of TV role that was important as well, was Brie Daniels and Clute. And I just wonder, it was the beginning of this long collaboration with Pakula, I think more times than any other director, you guys worked together. So how did that come about? And did you realize immediately that that was going to be a special one?
0: I did not realize immediately that it was going to be a special one. I was worried about doing it because I was beginning to become a feminist and I worried about playing a prostitute but feminist friends of mine said no if you can create a three-dimensional character you should do this it's important I asked the production to set it up to where I could spend time with call girls and madams for a week before we started shooting and at the end of that time I asked Pakula to let me out of my contract because I didn't think I could do it I had spent time with prostitutes and I just didn't think I could capture the deadness the profound cynicism and despair and deadness that seemed to emanate from all of the ones that I met. And Alan just laughed me out of his office. Really? <laughs> and I'm glad. Thank God he did. <laughs> because I found a way to get into her character. And can I ask what that was? Oh, it's too complicated. Too complicated. It's too complicated, <laughs> yeah.
1: Some things that are known are that you ended up staying in the room of the set that was...
0: Yeah, he, he got a flush toilet that on the set and I, and I lived there for a week and it helped me figure out a lot about her, and little details about her, like having a cat and uh, what would be glued to the refrigerator and what pictures would be on the wall and what books she'd be reading and everything.
1: So for somebody who has acknowledged that earlier in your life you maybe lacked confidence, was winning an Oscar a very big thing for you?
0: No. No? Not then. I was completely absorbed in my activism. I flew to LA for the Oscars from an Indian reservation in the Shoshone tribe in, was it Utah, I think? Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as the Oscars were over, I flew back and continued what I was doing as an activist. I mean, I was very, very happy, but I also, I don't know, I didn't, my career was not at the forefront of my mind at that time.
1: And that's evident from the fact that you didn't do what most people do, which is just cash in right after. I mean, you worked very little in the years after that. And I wonder if that was because, how much of that was your choice to focus on this activism? And how much was it, I mean, there were some that felt you were sort of blacklisted after 1970 when you'd been arrested. And then subsequently with some of the anti-war sentiment had maybe turned some people off from working with you. What do you feel was the proportionality of why you were working less in the years. Well, after.
0: it wasn't the blacklist. Yeah. You know, the blacklist was what it was. It destroyed lives. It destroyed careers in a in a very profound way. It was maybe like gray list, <laughs> <laughs> but mostly it was just that I wasn't paying attention. I was almost a full-time activist trying to end the war yeah. and trying to understand how we could have become involved with it in the first place. And trying to put the pieces together, because I've been living in France for eight years. And I was even thinking of leaving the business entirely. So, I mean, I worked from time to time, but my mind wasn't on it. And then I told someone in Detroit, Ken Cockrell, that I was thinking of quitting. And he said, no, he said, you know, the movement organizers are a dime a dozen, but we don't have movie stars Mm -hmm. in the movement. We need you to continue being an important actor. Yes. And you have to give more attention to your career. And really, that's when I began to think of producing my own films.
1: Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a Actually, a lot. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Really, what you did do in the 70s after that was pretty much almost exclusively social issue movies, right? Mm-hmm. But before I ask you about that, I just wonder, I keep up with your blog, I think it's terrific. And one of the most interesting posts that I've read was one where you basically said, I want to set the record straight because the thing that has sort of...
0: What really happened w- in Hanoi? Yes. That blog? Yeah. It was,
1: I think it was absolutely fascinating because everybody hears bits and pieces, and I think there's a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. out there. For instance, I did not know about the plans to bomb the dikes in Vietnam, that that mm. was really the that catalytic while thing went. for why you went, right? Mm-hmm. This was a two-week trip. You were doing all kinds of positive things. And it was really just at the last day of this that things went a little bit— un- Went a lot bad, yeah. yeah. So can I ask you, just for anybody who hasn't read that blog, just briefly, because I'm sure it's not your favorite topic, but what actually happened there?
0: On the anti-aircraft gun? Well, with the trip itself, why you were there? You know, all all I can say is, in the spring of 1972, the anti-war movement, I was with Tom Hayden, and he was considered a leader in the anti-war movement, and he and a lot of others got word from various countries, especially Sweden, that the United States appeared to be bombing the dikes of North Vietnam. North Vietnam, like Holland, is below sea level. A lot of it, the Red River Delta, and if you destroy the dikes, according to Kissinger, two million people could drown or starve because there'd be no more rice paddies, etc. Mm-hmm. Bombing the dikes had been proposed to Lyndon Johnson, and he said, "No, we. This is what Hitler did in Holland during the Second World War. The United States can never do that." But we'd gotten word that Nixon was doing that, targeting the dikes. This is while he was trying to persuade the American public that the war was ending. You know, pieces at hand. He was bringing back right. ground troops. When I went, there were only 24,000 American soldiers in South Vietnam. For all intents and purposes, what most Americans saw was the war was over. And then he recreated a war. The war became about getting POWs back, and he didn't never let people know that the bombing of North Vietnam had increased, I don't know how many fold, including the targeting of the dikes. And I decided that because other people had written about it that maybe my celebrity, my going there would mm-hmm. be different. Three hundred Americans had gone before me mm-hmm. that I could draw more attention to it. And and I went and I photographed damage to the dikes and many other things. And I visited people and interviewed people and visited Delivered hospitals letters. and I visited the POWs. I brought the families' letters to the POWs and I took a stack of POW letters back to their families. And, you know, the myth is that there were POWs marched past me in chains and I spit at them. Never happened. The POWs who I met with were not in chains. In fact, the, the one that later said he was tortured into seeing me raised his arm up and down and said, Tell my family, look, I can move my arm now because it had been injured when he crashed,
1: and in when fact his the plane crashed. Torture had ended a few years earlier.
0: There had not been torture in North Vietnam in their prisons for two years. Mm-hmm. The urban myth is that. The POWs gave me little pieces of paper with their social security numbers, so that I could bring them back and, and let their families know they were in prison. Well, that never happened, and it's so foolish to think that families knew who who everybody knew. The United States government knew every single POW that was there. There were letters going back and forth. I mean, it's just ignorance yeah, for people. Yeah. No, the horrible thing that happened was that on the last day, and I had said I didn't want to visit military sites. I was taken to an anti-aircraft gun outside of. Hanoi, and there was this ceremony that had been put on for me where a bunch of soldiers spoke and sang a song, and they asked me to sing, and I sang, and we were all laughing, and they said, here, sit down, and I sat down and click, 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 and I realized, oh my God, oh my God, and I asked them, please destroy those pictures, because I knew the image would belie who I am, what I was there for. I had been working with soldiers prior to that. It was a terrible, terrible thing.
1: And do you feel that part of the rationale for, as you say, when you came back and you resumed working in the film industry with your own production company, focusing on your own projects. I mean, was that a driving reason for making Coming Home to show that you really were on the side of the veterans who
0: came No. no. I mean, no, not to show people. Well, I, I didn't care. I'm going to show you that Jane Fonda cares. No, I made Coming Home because I wanted to show people what the vets are going through coming back. Right. Do you know, I had spent two and a half years working with returned Vietnam veterans. I'd been in VA hospitals. I'd interviewed scores of them I, and right. their wives and active duty servicemen. I probably knew more about what being in the military at that time meant than any other person who was a civilian. <laughs> and that's why I made coming home.
1: Was that an unusually challenging, emotional, trying film to do? It seems like, obviously, when it was released, made a huge impact on everything.
0: It was voted the favorite film of Vietnam veterans. Wow. The VA does a poll every year. Wow. What, what's the vet's favorite? And that was, along with Green Berets, was their favorite movie. That made me very happy. No, it took a long time to get the script. It was not easy to get financing for a movie about Vietnam at that time, but when we actually came to filming it, it was a a thrill, very exciting. And
1: again, another Oscar, just incidentally. uh, Not too many people have more than one. So just to briefly note some of these others that dealt with social issues around that time. Fun with Dick and Jane, I think you've said was about the false American dream, right? China syndrome, 12 days after it comes out, we have Three Mile Island, nine to five women in the workplace. So I have to assume that you believe that movies can make a difference in the real world.
0: I know that they can, and I know that 9 to 5 did. I Well, 9 to 5, Coming Home, China Syndrome, mm-hmm. and even on Golden Pond, yes. helped heal many relationships between children and their fathers. Yes, movies can make a difference in all kinds of ways.
1: So for you, on the most personal level, on Golden Pond... You found the project and initiated. Was it a long time ambition of yours to work with your father?
0: Yes, I had wanted to work m- with my father, and he was, God, he was younger than me. He wasn't that old, but he had a heart disease. And I knew that if I was ever going to do it, it had to happen fast. Yes. So this play turned out to be a great vehicle.
1: The scene that obviously is very affecting to a lot of people, and I know it was very impactful for you, was. When you actually for the first time maybe kind of espouse your real feelings as your characters can you describe what that one was like
0: well it was a scene where at my mother's urging she you know he's 80 years old how long do you expect to wait she says to me before you and he become friends so i buck up my courage and i walk out in the lake to tell him that i want us to be friends and he's quite nasty to to chelsea and Every time I read the scene, I, I would get very emotional. I mean these were words that I had never said in real life to my father so when when it really came time to do the scene, I dried up. <laughs> I was like i don 't know it was it was it's an actor's nightmare." I told the director that I'm going to turn my back to the camera and prepare and when I'm ready I'll turn around and you start rolling. So I turned around not knowing what I was going to do to open my channels of creativity and I looked up in Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn was hiding in the bushes. (laughs) Nobody could see her but me, and she raised her fists and shook her fist, you can do it Jane, you can do it Chelsea. (laughs) And she willed me into the scene, God bless her. It was an extraordinary experience. And
1: when you touch your father's arm, he actually, who is not the most emotional guy.
0: He never liked to do anything that wasn't rehearsed, that hadn't been rehearsed up the kazoo. All the takes, the two shots and the medium shots, I did not do this. But when it came to his close-up, which this scene is going to play in close-up, and I knew that, I did something I hadn't done before. When I said, I want to be your friend, I reached out and I touched his arm. And he dips his head and turns it away and kind of brings his hand up to his face. And I saw that he was starting to tear up. I wanted him to be emotional. It meant the world to me Mm -hmm. to see that.
1: And he did not live much beyond that movie, but he lived long enough that you were able to deliver him for the first time, which is kind of unbelievable. When people think about how many great movies he did, this was his first Oscar.
0: Yeah, I know. It It was one of the great days of my life. So right
1: after that, you did something I think that had been in the works even before it, which was unusual for a movie star to do at that time which was to go work in television for the first time I guess with the doll maker and I wonder for you what convinced you to take a step that for up till that point the forty years or whatever of the history of television had been regarded as a step in the wrong direction for a movie actress
0: I had on the book for a long time between the time that I first bought the book and when we made the movie, it was 12 years. And um, I started off wanting to do it as a movie. And we couldn't get a script right, and we couldn't get it right, and couldn't get it right. And you know, and it, it was a very dark project. I worried because I, I thought, it's going to be hard to sell it. And right around that time, Roots, the great Roots, was made into a mini-series. And, Tens of millions of people saw it. And that was when I discovered the value of television. More people saw that than, than had seen all of my movies and my dad's movies and a lot of other people's <laughs> movies combined. So I thought I'm going to do The Dollmaker as a television movie because I thought I think it's a really great, beautiful, important story. So the day after I won my Academy Award for coming home, Mm -hmm. I carried the award with me into my meeting at ABC (laughs) and asked them if they would produce it as a movie, The Dollmaker, and they said yes.
1: You have said that that role, again, alongside, I think, Clute is the one that you're proudest of. What is it? I mean, I certainly understand myself that it's great, but what, for you, makes it that special?
0: Oh, she's just such an incredible woman. She can't read, she can't write. She's profoundly religious, and she's an artist, and she doesn't know it. And just the way she handles the life that moves her from the Tennessee mining country, West Virginia, to the slums of Detroit where her husband gets a job because the mines have closed during the Second World War and her husband gets a job in a steel mill. And what that is like for her to be taken from the land and put into this alienated place. I really relate to that. I'm a person who I'm not really happy unless my feet are on the ground and I'm in nature. Mm -hmm. So I really related to that and the challenge of playing a hillbilly. I just, I desperately wanted to do it, and there's such incredible scenes with her children and when she loses one of her children, and she's just a towering character. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, between and Iris 1990 and Monster Lawn 2005, you were absent from the big screen, and I wonder what led you to leave the business and then what led you to come back?
0: I was, I would say, starting from the mid-'80s. I was very, very unhappy. I now, looking back on it, I think I was going through what is called perimenopause, which is the period that a woman goes through, usually in her mid to late 40s, early 50s, before she goes through menopause. Mm it's where the hormones begin to change. And very often a woman will lose her way and not know who she is anymore. Although I didn't identify perimenopause at the time, I think that what was happening was that that, combined with my feeling lost in life Mm -hmm. and my marriage falling apart, Working was too painful for me, I just I could not be creative, I was too unhappy. And so I decided to quit the business, and I was going to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico and become a full-time environmental activist. And then Ted Turner came into my life (laughs) and uh, bought half of New Mexico. (laughs) And I spent 10 wonderful years with him, and then spent five years writing my memoirs. And in the course of those 15 years, I healed. And got myself back, and um, decided that I could act again and find joy in it. And then, fortunately, right about that time, Monster in Law was offered to me. Yes,
1: and that was a strategic decision, right?
0: It was a, really the first strategic. Well, I guess going to ABC with my Oscar yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was a strategic yes. decision, but. The script wasn't very good, but for sure, my part was better than Jennifer's part. I don't know why Jennifer... (laughs) Why she uh, did it. Why she did it. But we worked on the script. Richard LaGravines created a fantastic character for me, and I thought, well, you know, it's going to be successful, because people are going to want to come and see Jennifer Lopez, but they'll discover or rediscover Rediscover. Jane Fonda, and that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Right.
1: What's interesting to me is that your first three post-comeback movies all dealt with sort of intergenerational struggles to communicate. There was Monster-in-Law, then there was Georgia Rule with Lindsay Lohan, and then in 2011, Peace, Love, and Misunderstanding, which, like on Golden Pond, is about a parent and child struggling to communicate, and only in both instances, first as the child and then as the parent, your character is the one that's yearning for the connection, and I just wonder, you know, I guess this may be more a therapy-type question, but why are you drawn, or have you been drawn to those kinds of stories?
0: Well, when I came back, when I made Monster in Law, I was 65 years old and didn't have a whole lot of choice, frankly. There's not, you know, Hollywood is not particularly kind to older actresses, as there's been more and more talk about that. Mm-hmm. So when I saw the thread of an interesting character in Monster in Law, and thought this would be a good comeback movie. That's why I took that one. I didn't think, I'm looking for movies about intergenerational (laughs) misunderstanding. No, in between I did a movie in France, because I speak French, Mm -hmm. about old age, Mm -hmm. only about old age. It was just that those were the scripts that came along that were well-written, that offered me a chance to play a multi-dimensional character. That doesn't happen very often. No, no, no.
1: But I think also have to note just, quickly that this past year with youth. Interesting that you're playing, you who came just after the studio system ended, playing this woman who started just before, Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine anyone else could have played it with as much sort of knowledge, because her contemporaries are people you would have known, right? Yeah. So now we mentioned Dollmaker, then Newsroom, you're back in television, and now Grace and Frankie. How did this come along, and was it immediately something that you felt was appropriate for you?
0: Well, I, I had long wanted, in fact, since my late 40s, I I'd wanted to give a cultural face to older women. And then I quit the business, so I thought, well, that's a bucket list thing that will never happen. So when I discovered I had a new career potential, starting at age 65, which, by the way, never happens, mm. you know, it just doesn't happen. I feel very blessed. Any chance that I had to play a A three-dimensional, fulsome, older woman I I was going to go for, and uh, they're completely different characters, the newsroom character and the Grace and Frankie character, but both of them are very interesting people, and when Marta proposed this movie with me and Lily, I jumped at the chance.
1: Now, other than the Golden Girls, I don't think there's ever been a show with two females over the age of 75 as the protagonists. Maybe I'm wrong. Who would you say the target audience for this show is?
0: Uh, Well... Obviously, the target audience was an older demographic that Uh Netflix was wanting to bring in, older men and women Uh and gay, Uh the LGBT community. What has completely taken us by surprise is how popular the show is among young women. We didn't expect that. It's very big on college campuses, Mm -hmm. which I'm, you know, we'll take it. (laughs) We're very happy about that. Just one thing that you may not know is that I'm doing a movie next fall with Bob Redford.
1: This will be the fourth. The
0: fourth one, yes. I'm very excited. The Chase,
1: Electric Horseman, Barefoot in
0: the Park, and now what's this about? This is called Our Souls at Night. Can you give a log line? No, it's, it's a romance. It's a romance? Yeah, it's a really that's lovely fantastic. story. That's fantastic.
1: Talking about reunions, Lily, it had been 35 years, I think, since mm-hmm. you'd worked with her. Why do you two work so well together? Could you just pick it right back
0: up? We're very, 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 very different. And yet, well, it's kind of like Grace and Frankie. She's strong where I'm not and vice versa. And that's true of Grace and Frankie. Mm-hmm. We have stayed friends since 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. We're both activists and she always shows up for me when I ask her to, and I try to show up for her when she asks me to. So we've stayed in touch.
1: Do you find, I, I feel like acting for television must in some ways be very different than theater or film, because with theater and film, you know where the story ends, and you can maybe shade your character or do whatever. Here, how far ahead of the audience are you, and does that feel, because you're not able to know where it's ending, does that make your job more complicated?
0: Well, we kind of know where it's ending. I mean, Sort of we know, not in detail. It's similar to theater in that you keep getting a chance to go deeper and deeper. Not deeper deeper in the same scenes, but deeper deeper in your character. And I like that. I mean, I think the second season is way better than the first one. And we start the third season tomorrow, That's so we'll fantastic.
1: see. Are you ready to ride this as long as it'll... As
0: long as it'll take us, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and what do you make of the Netflix model and this idea that you guys put out the whole season at once and people will watch it all at once sometimes. I mean. Some people have already
0: watched season one, you know, three or four three times. Three or four times. It's sides. hard to believe. Well, I'll tell you what's really fun. When Netflix last year released the first season, started streaming season one, I don't know what the word They drop it? They yeah, don't? yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. Okay. drop it, yeah. They just, yeah. it's yeah. out there. <laughs> it happened at midnight right. on a Thursday in mm-hmm. April. And Lily and I were in New York promoting it, and the next day we flew to L.A. By the time I landed in L.A., I was getting calls and emails from people who'd already seen the first well, season. Wow! It took six and a half hours to see the first season. <laughs> and that's wild. Yeah. Oh, my God, an episode. It's just been released, right? <laughs> episode five, what you did and the such and such and such. That was a lot of fun. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, with our last two minutes, I hope I can just ask you a few questions Big picture questions, Hillary or Bernie?
0: Well, I'm supporting Hillary, Okay, that's why,
1: yeah. Some argue that celebrities taking political positions, activist positions, which you were certainly a pioneer of, has also led to some unintended consequences. Everybody feels equally equipped to espouse a... Oh, I see.
0: Some celebrities are...
1: Less equipped to do so, and it gets us into, you know, but in the public are not necessarily able to tell the difference. Should there be a barrier for entry to being a political person?
0: there should be a barrier to people becoming a candidate for the highest office if they don't understand the complexities of what's going on they should not be allowed but you know that's not the way our system works so we can't disallow but whether they come from the world of law or business or art or whatever doesn't matter i mean Reagan, I feel, did a lot of harm. But I understand why people loved him. But he was, he'd been the head of the union. He had been, he was a very, very involved political person. I don't agree with his ideas, but, you know, he did pay attention. And I think that it's kind of good, the idea that people might come from the field of acting. Because actors, by the nature of our business, we are invited into another being's id, into to get inside their skin. And in order to do that, you have to understand them. Empathy. And you have to have empathy for them. And so I think what that does is it hones the empathy gene in actors. And I think empathy is a thing that all too often goes missing in our elected officials. So I think it's a kind of a good thing. And I do think that Reagan had empathy that wasn't so much his problem. I don't think that some of the Republican candidates now have right. have that. But I think, you know, celebrities. We've been lucky. We've gotten a lot from our society, and I think that we have an obligation to give back in whatever way we can. That can be on a very small level or a larger level. Celebrity does offer you a larger platform, but I think service is the rent you pay for life.
1: And the last question is just, you know, at 78 and with all of these tremendous accomplishments that we've just spent this time discussing, is there anything left that you feel that you have not done that you are very anxious to do? Or are you pretty content at this point?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm always content and I'm never content. I'm very at peace. I have a sense of well-being in my gut and soul, but, uh, I'm not content about a lot of things, and there's a few parts that I'd like to play, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. (laughs) And there's more that I'd like to do as an actor, and there's a lot more I'd like to do as an activist, you know, like climate change, among other things, and stopping violence against women and things that I'm involved in passionately. Right.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.